Welcome to From the Ground Up with Mark Weller. I'm Matt Rienzo, and back on the mic with me today is my friend and founding partner at Weller Development Company, Mark Weller. What's up, Mark? Hey, how are you, Matt? How's it going? I'm doing awesome. It's springtime out there, and uh, everything's going well. How are you? Good, good. Flowers are blooming. It's awesome in the Baltimore, D.C. region these days. So let's get to it. Uh, You know, the last couple shows, we had a lot of fun, Mark, with Steve Siegel and Jeff Baker and Mark Brody for our educational series talking about affordable housing and about uh, real estate development 101. Uh, But definitely glad to have you back on the show. It's good to be here. Like I said, it's, uh, it's a great time of year. All our projects are flying along. We're having a lot of fun. We're enjoying ourselves, and uh, I appreciate all the work you guys did the last few weeks. That was uh, very informative and very educational. Yeah, if you haven't had a chance to check those out, go back and listen to them today. Uh, So we're really excited. Let's switch gears to today. Uh, We're excited about our guest today, ultra successful, and I think, to me, the quintessential entrepreneur. He's an environmentalist, a planner, very involved in technology. He runs a drone business, or as I've been told, uh, unmanned uh, systems business, Um, owns a hotel, real estate, food halls, expert in supply chain and the mortgage business, philanthropist, et cetera, on and on and on. Um, He also co-founded one of the greatest global sports brands, Under Armour. Um, So I don't know, Mark, it's kind of hard to put Scott Plank in a box or give him a label, isn't it? Yeah, he's a really amazing and unique individual, and uh, it's really great to have him here today to be able to talk to him about some of it. All right, well, let's get going. He's an amazing guy, and he's got his hands in a little bit of everything. Uh, So let's welcome on the show Scott Plank. Scott, it's great to have you here. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you, Matt. Thank you, Mark. Yeah, Scott, thanks so much for being here. Uh, great to have you on. I mean, you have such a skilled and uh, amazing uh, background. Of course, you helped launch Under Armour uh, there for many years. Worked at Freddie Mac. You have experience in the world of mortgage business and development of various types of products. Mixed use, multifamily hotels, food halls, on and on. Uh, now you're the CEO of Warhorse Cities. Uh, two incredible, very unique companies, Mission Go and Medigo. Uh, give us your best synopsis of how your uh, early professional career led to where you are today. Thank you, guys. Um, And uh, it is a wonderful spring. Thank you for that. So, uh, look, when we talk about ourselves, um, so often we want to start with, you know, the very early beginnings. And, you know, I grew up in uh, Kensington, Maryland, you know, just outside of Washington, D.C. There we go. Kensington. That's where I live. Yes. Well, it is a wonderful place still because my mother was the mayor of Kensington for 18 years. I know it. Yeah, she's um, a legend in Kensington. Legendary. Um, I had four brothers growing up, so that certainly colors you. And uh, maybe I'll let the audience guess whether what what rank what rank I am in the family, you know, between oldest, youngest, and middle uh, by the end of the conversation. Um, but uh, uh, you know, growing up there, going early years of Holy Redeemer and Larchmont Public School, and uh, going on to Georgetown Prep. But um, you know, one of the things that was uh, always in my life is my father was a builder. Uh, my oldest brother Bill, uh, an architect, went to University of Virginia. Uh, my brother Stuart. Uh, construction engineer, went to Virginia Tech. Uh, myself, I uh, eventually went to University of Maryland and studied uh, city planning and architecture myself. But one of the things that I think, you know, has been most influential to me is uh, literally growing up building houses, um, growing in, in, in from dil- digging ditches to hammering nails, but um, recognizing the, you know, as a, as, a, as a young person, as a young man, you know, what is an accomplishment? And, you know, the physical accomplishment of building a house is an extraordinarily fun and interesting thing to do, especially if you're literally hammering the nail, you're turning the screw, you're putting in the plumbing. Um, You know, back in the day, we were able to walk on walls at, you know, uh, 30 feet in the air. We didn't have harnesses and 
uh, that kind of thing. You're walking and you're putting in shingles. And, um, but I think of that as both a family tradition, uh, as exciting and interesting, but also as, you know, eventually you start thinking about why am I building this house if I'm not going to live there, you know, thinking about how you're engaging with the community that way. So that's a lot of what I think about um, that colors both technology work, colors my Under Armour work, and it certainly colors the work we do at Warhorse Cities. What about your work at Freddie Mac? How does that influence what you're what you're doing now and kind of your uh, education, uh, career education, so to speak? Well, um, so Freddie Mac was an amazing, interesting opportunity. I was there five years, um, and um, it was my first job outside of what we would we all now call entrepreneurship, which is literally running as a carpenter, having a painting business, um, home painting business. Um, I was a real estate broker. You know, all of these things sort of looped together into understanding a very visceral ground level understanding of the real estate market and how people live in that. But moving to Freddie Mac, my first role there um, was um, an asset manager. And imagine going from a guy digging ditches or swinging hammers to managing a $1.3 billion portfolio of distressed uh, and uh, difficult mortgages. And this would have been, you know, back in the early 90s, mid 90s, when you had, uh, you know, one of our, one of the country's many different debacles of, uh, of mortgage, mortgage finance. So working with landlords who were really not interested in fixing up their homes, but also learning how to work in some of the most difficult neighborhoods and understand that I'm a visitor to that neighborhood. Um, I can have influenced that neighborhood, but in some ways, it's not so much am I going to try to understand that neighborhood, but it's my job to understand the people in the neighborhood uh, and be open to those conversations. Uh, I moved on at Freddie Mac working on uh, finance. So I like to say uh, this is um, working on uh, how can we get uh, the public markets, uh, what I would call like that rarefied air of, of uh, financing. Again, recognizing that when we walk through the neighborhood, we see buildings, we see, you know, merchants, we see um, apartment buildings and office buildings and workers. But what we don't see is that thing that's happening up in the uh, up in the ether in the clouds, which is the financing markets of what goes on. And eventually, you know, doing, you know, multi-billion dollar uh, transactions gives you this extraordinary understanding of I started out building houses, swinging hammers, you know, going to the store with a credit card going to the bank to get a loan. And then, you know, uh, the five years into Freddie Mac, where I was also very privileged, they paid for me to go to business school, began to learn um, that there's a heck of a lot more going on uh, floating around our heads with financial markets than maybe we, we really understand. And that has tremendously colored my uh, interest in, in, in uh, what I do now, but also recognizing that, you know, that's a privileged position to be able to see that. It's really interesting. And you mentioned, you know, working on houses, you know, using a hammer, then you talked about the mortgage business and, uh, you know, working with the banks. And then it seems to me like your work at Freddie and then the MBA, you got kind of put a bow on all that experience and allowed you to then kind of catapult out into other places from there. Yeah, I think so. I, I think also um, one thing you do get if, when you work at a big company uh, as a young person, you get a view uh, as a seat at the table, maybe into something that is tremendously more complicated than you would have uh, if you were being an entrepreneur as I was. So for me, it was a tremendous experience to understand. And then also understanding like just how many people it takes to do things. So I, I distinctly remember, you know, when we're going through a very complex financing, um, of course, Freddie Mac being right there in McLean, Virginia, 
you're sitting around a table and because of your role in that financing, you're managing a group of 15, 18 people could be uh, lawyers and uh, finance executives far, uh, far older than you, far more experienced than you, but recognizing that you represent Freddie Mac, which represents the uh, eventually represents, you know, how do you get great affordable housing to people, uh, which I spent five years doing is how does Freddie Mac, uh, the mission wise of why I wanted to go there, uh, the mission of Freddie Mac is to deliver affordable, accessible housing. And uh, I'm very proud that I did that for five years and that I was able to finance thousands and thousands of apartments where people live every day still and uh, making those uh, apartments affordable. That's amazing. And so then from there, you transitioned to working with Under Armour at, at some hey, point? Matt, I want to bring up one point about, I think it's really important to bring up what Scott was saying. <clears throat> I think his experience and, I, and you can't ever forget this if you're a young person listening to this and you're trying to gain experience. His experience with large companies helped really shape and inform his ability to work in an entrepreneurial environment. And you can't blow past that too fast because a lot of people want to go right that's to be an, an entrepreneur. Yeah, that's a great point. I had my own experience with a couple large companies, and I got to tell you, they were they were not long-lived. They were a year at a time or so, but they were invaluable. I saw what it took to put together big projects, big things, big financing projects, all that stuff. And uh, I think Scott's point just should be uh should be noted yeah that's a that's a great point and one that would be missed by most of us i mean i think some people are born as entrepreneurs and some people are are born as corporate employees and then to be able to do both is pretty special and i think a way you can get a lot of great experience i think as he said having a seat at the table it's something much larger for even a short period of time for for young folks and entrepreneurs is just a really great move if you get the opportunity that's a great point and and then so take us scott from there so how did it come about with under armor and transitioning from freddie to under armor thank you so um well it's a uh, sort of a not exactly circuitous story my brother kevin uh, Kevin Plank, tremendous entrepreneur, founder of Under Armour, of course. Um, well, he and I had been doing things long before that. So uh, we don't have enough time on this podcast <laughs> to let you also know. Uh, I lived in Guatemala for six or eight months. I was learning Spanish. Uh, my final exam was to go up into the hills of uh, uh, Guatemala and buy bracelets, literally buying bracelets and uh, what's called tipicas in Spanish, bringing that back, walking along uh, the uh beach from Miami to Fort Lauderdale, going to Grateful Dead shows, selling bracelets. <laughs> so uh, my brother Kevin and I actually, Kevin being uh, uh, five years younger than me, was still in college. And he was uh, at most the best salesperson you'll ever meet. So we started working together, uh, literally selling bracelets at Grateful Dead shows, you know, two for, uh, you know, uh, two bucks for one and uh, uh, three for five dollars. <laughs> so um, so we've amazing. had, we had a lot of experience working together. And of course you all know about Kevin's, um, uh, started his, uh, great industry with a thing called Rose Express. So, uh, yeah. me with my amazing experience at, uh, Freddie Mac and as a, a finance guy, uh, began doing, doing the bookkeeping, but also helping, uh, organize literally the logistics of how are you going to put out a whole bunch of flowers all in one day. So we had, we had fun doing those things together too. Um, well, it's funny because my brother and I went to a lot of dead shows together too, but I didn't start a multi-billion-dollar company, so I guess <laughs> better off for you. Yeah. It, well, as I said, my my path is circuitous. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. And so, then, what were your early years at Under Armour like? So, um, uh, you know, the other the other funny thing I always say. So, Kevin, uh, you know, 1996 really started the company. Um, I spent time with him because we were doing things together and brothers and learning and listening all the time what he's up to and. Um, and, uh, around 1998, uh, I started spending a lot of time with Kevin and, um, 
uh, started using the experience I had, again, as Mark said, from working with a very large organization and understanding, well, okay, so this is how you get a loan done. This is how you go through the right process and the relationships you need. Um, and started uh, working with Kevin doing uh, really just the finance and the bookkeeping and then creating business models and business direction. And then eventually, uh, prior to leaving Freddie Mac even, uh, I spent uh, from 98 to about 2000 when I left Freddie Mac working with Kevin and building out our business models, business plans, and uh, uh, getting uh, literally SBA loans. So um, I was able to go out and find out we could get a $75,000 loan um, and uh, only with Kevin's signature, which was great because I had a house at the time and I wasn't going to put my signature on it. Um, but, uh, and then of course you get that loan and you start getting the understanding of how to do that. Go to the next one. You literally go to the loan closing with another loan package. So early Under Armour was financed using, using debt, which as Mark said, again, you wouldn't necessarily say to yourself, wow, this guy you know, worked in the mortgage finance business. Well, I did, but really what I worked in was the leverage business, you know, and mm -hmm. I worked in the relationship business and I worked in understanding that, you know, uh, as a, as a uh, loan originator or a uh, finance guy at Freddie Mac, when you're trying to figure out which uh, project deal or borrower is best to fit in, um, you start to understand how that works. So I also started to understand, well, this is what Under Armour is. How do I find the right investor, in this case, uh, a lender, to be interested in what we're doing, have passion and compassion for a couple of, couple of fellas uh, without a lot of money doing this, um, and go out and find loans for it. So early years were very much about getting the thing financed, but also having bookkeeping and understanding and organizing things together. Uh, began working with um, on the technology side. Again, that uh, do-it-yourself kind of uh, – uh, you know, networking for dummies and literally, again, experience you have always builds in. So as a carpenter, I knew how to run wire through a building. You know, I knew how to connect wires because I'd done a lot of electrical work. So I put together our entire network, went out to, you know, Dell computers, found they were too expensive. So I went to the white label next door, put together a computer network for the company um, and, uh, you know, began literally working at that level. That's just fascinating. And having known you for a handful of years, I've heard bits and pieces of that, but to hear it all laid out chronologically is pretty impressive. Uh, very cool indeed. Yeah. So, uh, you know, switching gears a little bit, but the evolution of your career is, uh, is amazing. It's remarkable. And the latest thing it's brought you into uh, unmanned uh, aviation systems, UAS, um, doing such meaningful work. I mean, tell us about that. How did you get here? What's going on? It's, it's, yeah. Very and tell exciting. us about the companies too. Sure. Yeah. Thank you. So, um, Let's see, a couple of years ago, I started, um, uh, frankly, missing working in technology. So at Under Armour, among other things, I built our global supply chain, which is always a combination of workflow. So workflow means uh, it's actually relevant to this conversation. So, you know, what is a warehouse? A warehouse is a giant machine. And I built, over time, I started with building, you know, a 20,000-foot warehouse and then million-square-foot warehouses, recognizing that all of that requires a tremendous amount of technology, people, workflow, equipment, all of these things working together. So, you know, as I began, uh, you know, looking at technology again, a couple of years after um, uh, founding Warhorse Cities, um, began interested, became very interested in uh, next generation of supply chain, uh, as well as the idea of sustainability and how are we going to be moving through this? You know, we'd We've all been talking about electric cars, autonomous vehicles. We've been talking about electric airplanes for a long time. Um, but I began thinking about those 
uh, as a use case and recognizing that a great deal of what we're moving on, call it a helicopter or a small jet. Uh, you know, I was, I use the example on a helicopter. We have a, you know, 4,000 pound helicopter with 600 pounds of aviation fuel. We have two people on it and we're moving a 10 pound box. So, you know, at, at uh, Mission Go, we have an aircraft that is fully electric. It's a helicopter. Um, you know, a, 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 helico- a real helicopter can be five or six million dollars. And, uh, you know, an unmanned um, uh, helicopter we build is, a, you know, a tenth of that. And so you think about, uh, and it's all electric. So you don't have the aviation fuel flying over your head. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you have that sustainability. It's also incredibly quiet. So Scott, just to give give the yeah. listeners just some perspective, how big these uh, these vehicles are. So it's about as big as a couch. Got it. Yeah, like a three person couch. Got it. It's about it's about eight or nine feet wide with the 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 rotors about eight or nine feet wide. Is that right? Uh, it's much much more narrow than that. About about four foot diameter of In a rotor. Total. Got it. Total. And the, the aircraft can carry fifteen to twenty pounds for fifty minutes. And how high does that fly generally? Is it you know, as high as an airplane or much lower to the ground? So, uh, like most things in unmanned aircraft, there's, uh, there's never a straightforward answer. So the ah. aircraft could fly very high, but then you would get into airspace of manned aviation. Mm-hmm. So you generally are flying uh, around 300 feet would be a lot. Um, if you're in an urban environment, of course, you're flying higher because you're avoiding things. Um, but generally, it's not about the height. It's about the speed as well as being able to see the aircraft. And, um, and again, one of those other things people uh, really need to be thinking about in unmanned aircraft is it's, uh, it's about the safety, of the safety and uh, reliability of the aircraft equals safety and confidence of us on the ground. So mm-hmm. one of the most important things that people, you know, get a little bit worked up and they say, wow, we should really be having drones now. Well, I don't know that we've engaged with the general population and community sufficiently to say, hey, we're going to put drones over your head. And by the way, um, we need to make sure that those are, are very, very safe, very approved. They have lots of hours of time on them, um, which is what the FAA responsibility is. Yeah, the general public, I guess there's elements of mistrust and or big brother that makes them nervous about that business. Sure. Certainly makes sense. So what's your goal? So understanding you know, what you've said with the, with the unmanned systems and their purpose for transporting, um, you know, uh, organs and such. What's your goal with that business? Is it is it uh, you know to really change the way that medicine is performed, or to change the transportation industry, or like what if you if you look at what your main goal is for ten years down the road, or even twenty years down the road? Like, what do you want to come from this? Yeah, I can give you two very very uh, interesting use cases that we are involved in the research now. That to your point, 10, 20 years are going to become. I can't believe we used to fly a 5,000-pound helicopter or a 4,000-pound helicopter, it's going to seem insane. So, you know, great use case is uh, we fly currently in Southern California, and we have aircraft that are flying on top of power lines. And we've all heard of all the terrible situations with wildfires, and a great deal of that has been from faulty wiring on a power Mm -hmm. line. So we have uh, crews uh, running right now, um, and they're flying across a power line looking for uh, intrusions, looking for um, uh, trees in the way. Wow. They're looking for problems. You're using super, super high-powered cameras as, as well as other data collection device that you could see a broken cotter pin if you needed to. So being able to notify the uh, utility company that, hey, you've got a problem here, you better get out there. So we do that. We're flying thousands of poles all the time. So think about that 
as uh, as that becomes even more prevalent and we've become more confident in the aircraft we're using, you would just be able to run those just 24 hours a day and making sure that we have safety and reliability in our power distribution. The other thing we do is, uh, as we all know, within our power distribution, uh, we have a lot of waste. And that waste can come from uh, inefficient coupling and inefficient um, uh, consistency across it. So that's another way that you're saving enormous amount of power, making that sustainable in two ways. It's not a helicopter. It would be autonomous and you're saving power and you're you know, re- decreasing the risk of fire. The second way to think about it is also consistent, which is imagine you're um, uh, a healthcare system. And as we know, many of these, like at Hopkins at Maryland or, you know, uh, downtown in Washington, D.C. or out at Fairfax Hospital, it's a whole lot of different buildings on a campus. Imagine you had uh, a mission-go unmanned aircraft with a, with a uh, cargo box that is just literally flying constantly all around so that you're reducing the level of um, uh, inventory required in each building. You're also making it so that it becomes, I have, a, I have an emergency in this building. I need this particular uh, syringe, or I need this um, uh, medicine, or I need this blood test done. All of those things can be done tremendously faster, com- tremendously cheaper, as well as um, all electric. That's amazing. And so I guess to Cliff Notes, what you said, to me, it seems like the possibilities are limitless. And Well, Matt, to give know, you an example, I knew, I knew a few folks, this is very similar but different, I knew folks that were actually doing the object was to go view the different power lines and so on mm-hmm. up in, in remote areas. Right. And uh, it was actually done by a human being and they climbed up each one. And in some cases they had to camp in these places. They had to have people there to help them with wilderness control, bears, other things. It's not sustainable. It's not all. sustainable. Yeah. And, and it's literally extremely they would do dangerous. This, it was dangerous. And they would do this once a year versus able to do it with a drone and do it all year round, always making sure that things are in shape and so on. And literally that has gone from, you know, a four person once a year operation to, you know, probably once a month and, uh, and, and regulated and done with, with, you know, pure safety, uh, and safety first. Not yeah, I think Mark, don't, don't underestimate the importance of the safety to, uh, the inspector. Yeah. Um, and, and we think about different types of power lines, the ones that, uh, you know, go between your houses, but then the transmission lines, which yeah. are the giant ones that look like, uh, you know, like war <laughs> of the worlds or something. Um, those inspections are doing done, being done with people climbing up that pole. Yeah. It's extremely dangerous. You're in the middle of the, um, the field of, uh, of the um, electrification, uh, or you're flying a helicopter on top of it. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I feel very confident that um, uh, the life-saving sustainability of unmanned aircraft is, frankly, why I do it and why I think it's going to be so powerful. And it 100%. seems like there's tons of opportunity, just not in those couple fields that we mentioned, but just for positive disruption across many different businesses um, with with that business. That's awesome. With that great work, it really uh, transitions us into something that I know we're both really passionate about. It's community building. And uh, you've done some really innovative projects, uh, for example, transforming police stations, uh, community spaces, you know, f- transforming com- uh, police station into a community space, actually. Uh, Belvedere Square Market is another one of the hall locations in both College Park and San Francisco. And you haven't, if you haven't checked those out, uh, uh, San Francisco is no longer open, but College Park is absolutely amazing. I mean, w- you know, you, you've done a lot of this and you've done it really successfully. What is the key to community building in real estate and why is it such an important part of what you do? Yeah, I think so, Mark. And, and boy, you uh, nobody knows that better than, you know, Weller Development and the work you guys have done, whether it's uh, Port Covington or other things, you know, the hotel we've done together. Um, 
And I, I think um, uh, I think of it very very similarly, which is you do uh, you do what you do, you do what you enjoy doing, you do what you're good at. Um, but most importantly for me is that I can add a, add value of something that maybe hasn't been looked at before. There's a lot of people can build an apartment building in a hotel, and there's a lot of people that can build uh, warehousing. There's a lot of people can build a golf course. Um, but I like to think if I'm going to be involved, it's because I have something something different and more more to add than that. Um, and so, Mark, you mentioned uh, like uh, philanthropy. So often people uh, reach a certain status in their life where they've you know earned some money and think about, well, I don't know where to get started. Well, I always say the same thing. You get started in philanthropy, make it real easy on yourself. What do you know how to do really well? Just do it for free, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, then you'll also find that you're able to bring the friends and family that you've already been working with. So you mentioned um, uh, we renovated uh, 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 a police station into a community gathering spot after the Freddie Gray uprising. And I was able to bring friends of mine that, you know, do concrete work and friends of mine that do uh, interior works um, and and get people to contribute themselves. So we financed it, we managed it and rolled it in and we got the architect. But, you know, for me, it's a, a great place to start is where you've already got you know, experience and friends to do it and where you can add a, add a different space to it. Hey, Scott, if you don't mind, like that, that was one of the most special things I've seen you do um, because you, you, you just totally flipped everything on its head. You took a police station that was largely, uh, I would say underutilized as, as any kind of community investment, uh, certainly and run down and run down. And you managed to not just renovate it, but you managed to turn it into a community hub. Uh, you took it from what it was to what it became, and what it became was uh, was really an amazing um, center point for the community that had everything from restrooms that were open to the public and free Wi-Fi and ability to have clinics uh, for vaccinations and food trucks. Um, community meetings as well. Community you know. meetings, everything. It was re- it was really fascinating. And also, the inside of the of the uh, of the station was also renovated, so the policemen were were un- were comfortable and secure and able to work out and in a clean, healthy environment. Tell us about a little bit of the thinking that went into that because it was really unusual and arguably one of the most, I think, um, important projects I've ever seen done in the city of Baltimore. Well, th- thank you for that. Um, so I think, um, you know, frankly, the process for doing any project, development project, um, starting a business, all these projects are the process you go through is the most important thing. And that process begins with a lot of conversation, a lot of interviewing, a lot of uh, spending time someplace. So uh, real estate projects are some of the easiest because you can just like sit in front of the police station for a day and just see what happens, how, how people are you know, doing what they're doing. Building a, um, a food hall is very similar. You're in an empty space and you're watching people come by and getting it every opportunity to talk to people. So that, that, that um, uh, idea uh, came from 40 community meetings literally 40 meetings. Um, and of course they were all done someplace else because the police and the community had a, uh, mm-hmm. and continue in, 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 in America in many ways in West Baltimore, certainly. Um, and what we learned was that there wasn't a place where the community and the police came together to talk about issues where it was, uh, sort of a neutral ground, if you will, where an opportunity was given to build uh, a multi-purpose park literally in front of a police station, uh, to build a community gathering room open to the public uh, in the police station. The other thing we learned was that how do we get the best police officers who have the opportunity to work 
uh, both outside of Baltimore City and within Baltimore City. But how do we give them the best amenities to attract them to uh, the community which is in greatest need? And um, with that, you're also getting an environment where uh, we would always say everybody's very concerned for their safety in West Baltimore. And I learned that over time. It's uh, The police are just as nervous in some cases um, as others in the community, um, particularly after the uprising and uh, literally bullet holes in the police station. So what we wanted to work on was how can we bring a community gathering space open to the public uh, that was um, in the police station? And then how do we bring amenities to that police station in the heart of Baltimore City that are very common in uh, Northern Virginia or Montgomery County or wealthy, wealthy suburbs? Uh, the police stations are actually really fantastic. Uh, the third piece that we learned was this particular Baltimore City police stations were built in the 50s. And, of course, what we know, uh, I'm a student of urban planning and urban studies. We all know that the reason you build a police station in the 50s was it was a garrison. It was an occupation force. It was not a community engagement in, at all. These police stations in Baltimore had a, uh, a courthouse and a jail and the police. So imagine how the community is feeling about that. You, you know, you're all your, everything is done uh, to you uh, right, right in that neighborhood. So um, the, the courthouse had been long moved out. Um, the jail was there, but it was uh, not used anymore. So how do we take these things like a courthouse that was the place you would go for, you know, justice and adjudication and turn that into a community gathering spot where you might go to talk to people um, turning a jail uh, which is a place where you don't get to exercise, you don't get to, you know, community engage and, and turning that into a, a workout facility and gym and mental health facility for both the community and the police. So, um, Mark, the process is is always the same. It's, you know, we have ideas that we bring. Um, I have a breadth of experience that I bring. I've built warehouses in Amsterdam. I've built office space in, you know, Hong Kong and Shanghai. So uh, my experience is broad but I always remember that I bring my own, you know, point of view. So being really thoughtful about the diligence is probably the most important thing we do. Well, and obviously that's a community building exercise. Um, it's also has elements of philanthropy. There's no question. And you've been very generous and, and been active in philanthropy. Um, aside from the police station, what are, what's uh, one or two things that you've done in your career that you're most proud of or that you're most excited about with regards to working in the community or philanthropy or something along those lines? Uh, thank you. I think, um, again, I, I, as I said, I think one of the most important things is when you're considering give back, considering engaging with communities, bring your best skill set to it. So um, there's many ways that people do that. But I think that one of my best skill sets is uh, convening people, bringing them together, mm -hmm. learning, uh, designing and building exciting things. So, um, you know, I, I've built um, uh, in uh, the public schools around Baltimore City, uh, we've built um, uh, something like a, a teacher's lounge. Um, in one school, I rebuilt the cafeteria so that they would have better access to fresh vegetables because the cafeteria itself wasn't built for that. Mm -hmm. um, putting in a salad bar, but also reorganizing the entire cafeteria. Um, with um, uh, in, in some places, like at uh, Baltimore School for the Arts, uh, we took they had a library there. And of course, this is an art school, so a library has interest. But in the world of digitization, we transformed the library space into the uh, Center for um, 
uh, collaboration, arts and technology, uh, recognizing that um, uh, an artist at Baltimore School for the Arts, which is a public school, uh, the only way you can get in is through um, uh, uh, audition. Uh, you can't game your way into it. Uh, and as public schools go, it has a very high graduation rate. Um, some of the, you know, Jada Pinkett Smith is a graduate, for example. Uh, Tupac is a graduate. I mean, tremendous about that. But being able to say, I know a ton about building spaces people want to come to. I know a ton about how technology works. Considering at Under Armour, I ran our technology businesses. Mm -hmm. So um, among other things, our e-commerce business. And so I hired hundreds of people into tech businesses and understood like what's that profile. And uh, we recognize that it's great that you're learning, you know, flute and violin and you're learning to act and those things are critically important. However, uh, getting a job in the new world, you better understand technology. So we put in there the latest um, uh, types of programs and systems, uh, 3D technology, um, so that the kids are learning to use their incredible eye for design and their incredible eye for communication um, and get jobs in the 21st century. Wow, that's wonderful. That's that's amazing, and I think that that uh, you know emphasis on schools is super important, and, and kind of the you know the way that we all need to be thinking going forward with uh, you know our cities being what they are. Um, that commitment to the kids and to the schools is essential. So, thank you for that. Um, switching gears quickly uh, out of philanthropy, more into the built environment. Um, you uh, are a partner in the Sagamore Pendry Hotel, which uh, won number one hotel in two thousand eighteen. And then, um, you know, you also built Anthem House, which is uh, an incredible apartment building in Baltimore, which really kind of tested the market uh, as far as quality and, and rates are concerned. Um, what's it like bringing those kind of, you know, those are just two examples of many. We talked about others. Bringing exemplary product like that to the market in Baltimore. What's that been like? Yeah, thanks for recognizing that and asking that. I think, I think um, uh, I'm going to answer that question by uh, referring to what we talked about before, which is uh, a city is best when there are opportunities for all sorts of people. So we also build uh, through our not-for-profit, uh, we buy empty shells, turn them into beautiful townhouses and sell them at a discount to communities. We have built, uh, managed um, two different uh, food markets uh, both in uh, West Baltimore and then South Baltimore. Um, we've worked, as I said, in the schools. Um, and so I think what's important is that we recognize that first and foremost as a developer that you can't just roll in the super high value product because you're not doing what the city and what the world needs, which is accessibility, it needs diversity, uh, it needs affordability. So I often preface that. Um, the other thing about those two projects that I, I like to talk about is um, they're very illustrative of my personal conviction that when you're building a project, um, you, you, you keep the very best spaces open to the general public um, or you're open to the people who are staying there. So, for example, in Anthem House, which is a beautiful 350-unit uh, apartment building uh, in South Baltimore um, on a peninsula, it has views of water on both sides. But the way we organized it, um, the center of each side of that building, one center is a park open to everybody in the in that Anthem House community. And the center of the other side is the gym and the pool uh, and the uh, community gathering spaces. So imagine 
that you're staying in a one bedroom or an efficiency in Anthem house, but you know that you can go over to the pool and have the view of a penthouse. You know, the same would be true for what we did at um, Sagamore Pendry Hotel, which is on a pier. So you think about uh, leaving uh, open space for community. And so on either side of that pier, um, anybody can walk out to the end of the pier. If you want to come to our pool uh, and um, the uh, small area to get a, a bite to eat uh, or rent a cabana, that's open to the public. And you're literally mm -hmm. in the middle of Baltimore Harbor. Interestingly enough, Anthem House has a view of Pendry and Pendry has a view of Anthem. So enhancing the view is important too. So these are both beautiful buildings you can look back and forth on. But I think, to, uh, that again, the summary to me is that um, a city, for you to be a great uh, great developer, you need to be doing offering uh, all sorts of different product at different levels, different costs, different amenity packages. And the other piece, again, is uh, I always say, you know, don't privatize the best view. Scott, I got to say, I've been really lucky the last 10 years or so and spent a lot of time with you. So I've, uh, I'm just glad I get to share some of what I've learned, you know, you, we get, we're talking about a little bit of that today with, with people out there because you, uh, you're, you're a very incredible guy. Your curiosity, passion, and understanding of the subject matters that you do, which are pretty varied, is incredible. So I just want to thank you very much for coming on and, and sharing some of that with, uh, with our audience today and really appreciate it. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Matt. Yeah, it's been a great episode, and I know our listeners are going to be super pumped um, to learn all about it. And uh, thank you very much for being on. That's going to do it for us today. Thank you so much to Scott Plank for being here. We're so glad to have our co-host Mark Weller back with us. Thank you so much for listening. We can't wait to keep bringing you new interviews and the best content in the business. We'd love to hear from the audience on topics you want us to talk about or guests you'd like us to have on. So reach out to us on social media at Weller Development on Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn. I'm Matt Rienzo and he's Mark Weller. Keep building people.